Before we begin, I want to take a moment and uh, pray for, for the people who will be directly affected by the government shutdown. Uh, five years ago when that happened, I remember just thinking that the people who are in control of the situation were just being dumb. But I wasn't, I wasn't thinking about the people who would be directly affected by this. So I have friends who are military personnel and other people whose lives will be upended because of this. Many of us may not be directly affected by that, but there are people that I know and that I care about that will be, that are affected by the government shutdown. So I want to pray for that. And then also want to pray for the people who sit in this section. Because if you sit over there, I don't know what it is. Remember when Jesus casted them, the, the, the legion of pigs that out into the pigs and they ran? I think some of them demons escaped and they torment the kids in that room. So if you sit back there, you will hear kids screaming, clawing, dying, resurrecting, dying again, different voices. So I don't know. So if you have kids in that room, Pay attention to that sign because the people who are doing children's ministry need you to pay attention. I don't know what it is in that room, and them kids are not going for it at all. So I was like sitting back there like, man, this is ridiculous. So I, I just want to pray for the workers in that room in particular, that the spirit would descend upon them, not like a dove because I was Jesus, but maybe like some pigeons or something. I don't know. But they, they need the Lord desperately every Sunday. All right, let's pray. Father, we pray first for the, the government shutdown. And we, many of us, we just read what political pundits and different people who speak for both of their respective parties, we just read their attacks against one another. We formulate our opinions sometimes based on the information of what others or other people's opinions and a lot of it just seems foolish to me, but I'm, I'm not you. I don't know what, what's happening. I do know that you are a God that's in control of everything, including a shutdown. And so, Lord, I'm, I'm not worried in the sense that what's happening, like, as if somehow you're not in control, but your being in control doesn't always mean that things go smoothly for us. And so, Lord, I pray for those in this room and those who have loved ones in this room and throughout the world that would just be directly affected because of this. As I read the different uh, institutions that will close and the different things that will happen, while I'm not directly affected per se, it doesn't mean it's not a serious problem. And Lord, I don't want to be one of those people who if it doesn't directly affect me, I don't care. Lord, we care because it affects others. And so Lord, I pray that, that you would sustain those who are directly affected through this, who may not be able to work, who will have less income, who are worried about how long this will last. I pray for those who have traveled and now have to return as a result of this. I pray for those who, that you would give them, uh, well, one Lord, I pray that they would be able to resolve the issues and that the government would not be shut down. I pray for this 1 a.m. meeting on Monday morning that they've called to try to come to an agreement to not have the government be shut down beyond this meeting. So I pray for that, Lord. Ultimately, not our will, but your will be done. But we pray that you would comfort those who are in the situation where they are directly affected by, by people who are still getting paid, even though some of these people will not be. And Lord, lastly, we just pray. I jokingly said this, but we just pray for all the children's ministry workers. Look, they do a significant job for many of us parents who, uh, that allow us to listen and focus as best as possible to be undistracted they take the burden for many of us for the time that we're in this room uh, to hear your word. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would strengthen them, encourage them, and help them to persevere where necessary and to count it all joy if it's a trial where necessary. In your name we pray. Amen. I right, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. We are continuing in a series. We are at the front end of the series. So if this is the yellow brick road, then we have just taken our first step. So we are just, we did verses one through seven last week, and we will look at verses eight through 15 today, and by God's grace, understand a little bit more 
of why this passage is significant. So Romans 1, beginning in verse 8, reading from the CSB, Christian Standard Bible, and I quote, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because of the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. Verse 9, God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit and telling the good news about his son that I constantly mention you. Verse 10, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Verse 11. For I want very much to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Verse 12, that it is to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Verse 13, now I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I often plan to come to you, but was previously, but was prevented until now in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you, just as I have among the rest of the Gentiles. 14, and I am obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, 15. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. This is the second part of Paul's letter after he gives them this very theological introduction that we looked at last week. We transition to really Paul addressing a couple of issues for them that on the front end may seem like they don't really pertain to us. And so on one level, it seems like we could explain this in just a few minutes and be done. But I want to, I want to take what he's saying here, his excitement for the church, his understanding, what he's communicated to the church about their faith being known throughout the world, their, his desire to have a mutual good time of fellowship with them. He's looking forward to hanging with these Christians. He's looking forward to being with them, and, and there's an excitement about them. I want to contrast this view of the church with another view of the church some 2,000 years later. This is an article recently written. If you were one of the D group leaders, Mike went over this article with you. I'd like to read an article of an observation of, now this is Paul's writing to one church. Christians in this church would hopefully become many churches at the time as he's writing. So this one, I want to read, this is, an this is an observation of the church, not a particular church, but of the church, for lack of a better way of saying it, in America. So this is sort of Christianica, if you will, Christianity in America. And he writes, I was recently in invited to attend and give a reflection at a prayer vigil for persecuted Christians hosted by a church in Maryland. The church was hoping that the 150 congregants would come. They got about three. This is not our church. I just want you to know that. Just so you know, it's not a trick. It's not a trick here. If this was our church, I'd be blown and I wouldn't even read it. <laughs> to be fair, there was some bad weather that afternoon, and it was on a Friday night when most people would rather be relaxing on the couch or going out to a nice dinner with their spouse. There are a million reasons, a few of them even legitimate, why you would not show up to something like this. But it was sad all the same to see the bare pews and to hear a couple of speakers deliver beautiful and impassioned pleas to an empty church. At the end, they collected donations for a Christian school in Iraq, but nobody was there to give anything. Before the visual, I remember saying to my wife that every church in the country ought to do something like this at least once a month. Now I know why they don't. I reflected on this when I read a report that Christian persecution and genocide is worse now than it has ever been in history. Christians in Afghanistan, Somalia, Sudan, Pakistan, North Korea, Libya, Iraq, Yemen, Iran, Egypt, and many other countries are regularly imprisoned, tortured, beaten, raped, and martyred. Their churches are destroyed. Their houses burned. They meet and worship in secret, risking their lives in the process. They live every moment in constant danger. About 215 million Christians face what is called extreme persecution for their faith. It's estimated that around a million have been slaughtered since 2005. There is no way to know exactly how many. What we do know is that Christianity has been dramatically reduced in parts of the world where it had existed for nearly 2,000 years. Tradition tells us that St. Mark brought Christianity to Egypt in the early part of the first century. Today, 
The seed he planted has been ripped up. Two churches in the country were attacked and 44 Christians massacred on Palm Sunday last year. It was the same year 28 Christian pilgrims were martyred while en route to a monastery. The Muslim assailants gave them a chance to save themselves if they would recite an Islamic profession of faith. They refused, and so they were shot in the head. This sort of thing is a regular occurrence in Egypt and in several other nations across the globe. But what do we care? There are two other things, there are other things to worry about here. Hollywood sex scandals, Twitter disputes, whatever controversial thing Trump said this week, so on and so on. We, myself included, spend far more time and spill far more ink on these issues than we ever have on the coordinated genocide of our fellow believers in the Middle East, Africa, and Asia. Why? I have come to believe that our disinterest stems not only from the general apathy that defines Western society and the Western church, but from a moral cowardice. To face the plight of our brothers and sisters is to face ourselves. To see these Christians who would rather be shot dead in the, in the desert than renounce their faith is to see our own faith as a shabby, pitiful, hollow imitation. To see Christians who would risk their very lives to go to church and preach the gospel is to question why we will do neither of those things, even though we are perfectly free and able. We cannot confront these truths of ourselves, so we will not confront the truth of Christian persecution. Christians in the East forfeit their lives rather than forfeit their souls, and we forfeit our souls, even though we could quite easily retain both. The church overseas has been under violent assault, yet the enemies of Christ have not won. They have diminished the church in numbers by killing its members, but, it's, but it is strong and resilient where it still stands. Our situation is exactly the reverse. We have submitted to the forces of darkness. We have been our knees in homage to Satan, and the enemies of the faith haven't even fired a shot to induce our surrender. Satan does not beat us with a stick. He dangles a carrot. He lulls us to sleep. He distracts us. He tempts us. Kill us? Why would he do that? We are no threat to him. A Christian in Afghanistan is a threat. He must be destroyed. It is the only way. But a lazy, soft, equivocating Christian in the West, there's no need to persecute him. He's not worthy of it. Just give him a television and the Internet and let him damn himself. Satan's legions in America, to include his agents within the church, of which there are many, have figured out the secret. Don't put a gun to their heads and tell them to stop being a Christian. Instead, just give them something else to do. Whatever you do, never make them afraid. Because if you do that, you may accidentally awaken their courage, and then your plan is in trouble. Indeed, if your persecution produces a bunch of passionate, courageous Christians, you better go and execute every last one of them. Leave even one alive, let one slip through the cracks, and you're doomed. A Christian like that, one who cannot be shamed into silence, cannot be intimidated, cannot be made to conform, cannot be controlled by earthly forces, is powerful beyond all imagining. All you can do with him is kill him. He's too dangerous. Your tricks won't work on him. He has the grace of God, and you have nothing better to offer him. From the devil's perspective, this is not ideal. Murdering such a Christian means sending him straight to heaven, which is why the mass slaughter of Christians is a bittersweet sight in hell. On the one hand, the demons enjoy such immense suffering. On the other, they are losing souls forever into the arms of the Almighty. Satan surely prefers the situation here in the West. We believers are blessed to be free from the trials inflicted upon our brothers and sisters, but he knows better. We kick back and relax in our false sense of security while he licks his lips and prepares to feast upon us. He knows that we have become numb in our efforts. Our faith is stagnant and stale. We don't cling desperately to God. We cling to other things, our jobs, our relationships, our ambitions, our friends, our hobbies, our phones, our pets. We don't even think of him most of the time. We make no attempt to conform our lives to his commandments or to walk the narrow path that Christ forged for us. We are too busy for all of that, we say, and it's inconvenient. Christ says, pick up your cross and follow, but we take this as an optional suggestion. We leave our crosses on the side of the road and head back inside where it's warm and there's a new Netflix show to binge. 
We tell ourselves that we'll be fine in the end because we are decent people and we are leading normal lives. And sure, we believe in Jesus or whatever. And Satan laughs. He does not want us to be jolted out of this stupor, and he has no doubt instructed his legions accordingly. The persecutors of the church in America have quite an easy job. For them, the strategy is clear. Put down the gun. Don't dr drop the machete. Don't scare these people. Don't make martyrs of them. Don't give them any hint that there is a war going on and the fate of their souls lies in the balance. Let them be arrogant and self-assured. Let them push out any thought of their own mortality. Let them dismiss everything I'm saying right now as pessimistic and negative. Let them enjoy themselves. Let them have spiritual indifference and let them dress it up as positivity and hopefulness. Let them have it all. Fluff their pillow for them even. Turn on the TV and hand them the remote. Feed them, pamper them, pleasure them. Give them everything their hearts desire. Don't appeal to their fear. Appeal to their lust, their laziness, their gluttony, their vanity their pride, their boredom, and watch them drop like flies. That is a different picture of the church than Paul is talking about in Romans 1, 8 through 15. The irony of these seven verses, our text this morning, is that this church was a culture of distraction. This was a culture of distraction. Now, they didn't have, obviously, the technological advances that we have today, but there was a real culture of distraction. For them, they wouldn't be talking about new apps or Netflix or anything of the sort, but they would be talking about other things that would distract them. And yet he finds this wonderfully faithful church that he cannot wait to interact with. So here's the question I want us to think about as we go through this passage. What would Paul say if he were coming to visit our church? Now, many of us may not be members of the church, so let's just step back from the church then. What would Paul say about you about me if he were coming to interact with us? What would he say of my, yours, we, our faith? Would he find a church full of distracted people, apathetic, excuse-laden? Would he find that or would he find people who would mutually encourage his faith? Would he be encouraged not just because of this morning. This morning is room to be encouraged. And thank God for those who served this week. This is the first year I haven't been able to do it. But it's a, it's a, it's a sacrifice, especially those who stay from that, that, that early morning, that 1 a.m. to 7 a.m. hour. Those were the shifts I used to take. I met good brothers there, good brothers. I became friends with people in the church because we were so tired that everything we said was funny. <laughs> We'd quietly laugh. We'd be like, boo. <laughs> At 418, you're irrational. So I'm thankful for that. So I'm not talking about what would he say about this week. What would he say about our church or about us individually? Now, this passage, as we read through, it's not a real complicated passage. It's not complicated. There's a lot of you that could probably get up and, for the most part, explain what he's saying, or at least you can read this and understand what he's saying. This isn't nearly as complicated as last week. But let's zoom in so we can see what he's saying. Why is he excited about this church? Let's see what we can learn from this as we hold the question in our minds. What would he say about our church? Beginning in verse 8. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. So Paul is beginning his 
perspective with excitement. He's excited. So he starts off in verses 1 through 7, laying down this theological foundation about who he is, who God is, who Christ is, what the Spirit has done, all this stuff. And then he lays on this foundation of what his responsibility is to them about making sure that there's an obedience of the faith. That's what God has given him. And then he transitions from that introduction to an excitement about being with them. This is a wonderful reality for this church because, as I alluded to, this church was in a culture of distraction. There was forced worship. Like, you, if you believed in Jesus, you could be a threat to Caesar or who, whoever was in power at the time. You could be a threat. So you had to deal with governmental authorities that could just, just antagonize you and harm you because you're a believer. Then you had to deal with Jews who did not believe in Jesus who did not like you. Then you had to deal with some of the difficulty of essentially a new religion. This letter isn't written to a church that's been established for a couple thousand years like ours that has the history of people to learn from. These are the people who are doing it first. So you have all these pitfalls. You have all this entertainment, all this sexual immorality, all this worship of all these other gods, all in one city, one area. It's easy to be distracted in Rome, the church he's writing to. However, he's excited. He says, news of your faith. News of your faith has been reported in all the world. Now, Paul hadn't even gone to Spain yet, as far as we know. So we know that Paul's not talking about the entire world. He's talking about the world that he, the, the, the known world of churches that he's planted, different parts of the world, they have heard of your faith, and they're encouraged. They're encouraged. Now, if we just read over this, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because we can miss little subtle theological things that Paul's doing. So let me show you one subtle theological thing that Paul is doing just in this verse. And this is why I love reading stuff from Paul. He does stuff like this. Beginning of verse 8, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. For us, that, that, that just, we just pass over that. But listen to what he's saying. First, I thank my God, talking about the Father. So the prayer and praise, I'm thanking God through Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the mediator between man and God. So Jesus has come as a human being, died on the cross, risen from the dead, and given us his spirit, and so now he's the mediator between us and God. If you believe in Jesus Christ, then Jesus stands between you and the Father's judgment. And when you die and stand before God in heaven, even though we're guilty of sinfulness, of sinning against God, God will see you as belonging to, believing in Jesus, or if it was a courtroom, Jesus will declare us not guilty. He's the mediator. So I thank my God... The prayer and praise, I'm praying and praising him through Jesus Christ. Just identifying even some of the roles in just a subtle theological way, he's making sure even little things like that make theological sense. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. So he can thank God through Jesus Christ. In verses 9 through 12, he begins to show his affection for them. And there's, there's something to be learned here. There's, there's, there's affection for these people in verses 9 through 12. Let's look. God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in telling the good news about the Son that I constantly mention you, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I want very much to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So this is the most affectionate part of our text this morning. Paul personalizes his affection for this church. And there's something that we can learn from this. So here he goes. He uses God as the standard for truth. So when he says, God is my witness. He uses God as a standard for truth, and he says, God is my witness to whom I preach the gospel with all my heart, but the way he phrases it is, in, with my spirit in telling the good news about his son. 
So God is the standard of truth and whom with all my heart I am telling people about Jesus Christ. He's laying down this, this foundation because he's about to explain to them how much he's affect, his affectionate love towards them. And he says, I always mention you, always asking in my prayers, constantly mention you. Now we have to remember one thing. Paul has never met these people. He didn't plant this church. He doesn't know these people. But what he's saying is, man, I thank God for you. And when I talk to the Father, when I talk to God through Jesus Christ, I am, I am talking about you. I am making mention of you. You are on my mind. I care enough about you that I'm praying to the Father, but I've never met you. The only thing that we have in common that I know of is that we believe in the same God. We don't have the same culture. We don't have the same likes or dislikes. We may not like the same food. We may not like the same music, but we believe in the same God. Therefore, with confidence, even though I don't know you, I know what you believe. Therefore, I love you. That's huge. Because if Paul can tell people that he doesn't know, that he loves them because they believe in Jesus Christ, then it should be easy to tell people that you do know. It should be easy to love people that you do know, whom you sit beside consistently who say they believe in Jesus Christ. But yet it's very difficult. What do we say? It's awkward. It's awkward. People are awkward. You're awkward. I'm an awkward dude. Me and my kids will sit around and make up names, and people will be like, what are y'all doing? We'll be in a restaurant, and I'll just be like this. Hey, son, what about Pusp Donaldson? And then we'll just start dying laughing. And if my wife is with us, she'll just be like this. <laughs> and then my other son will come up with a name. And then my other son will come up with a name, and I'll be like, son, I just said that you can't say my name. And work on your material, son. Just love it. Just love that. Love that interaction. Love having fun with them just to be dumb with them. We're awkward. I'm awkward. It's awkward to love people. But here Paul is modeling what this looks like. He, he mentions them in his prayers, and in particular, he has a desire to come and see them. This is a reality. This is a functioning reality in the church. In fact, and you know this because we've said this a lot, loving one another is at the top of our list because loving other people who profess to believe in Jesus is part of the proof that you actually believe in Jesus. First John tells us if you do not love your brother whom you have seen, then you cannot love God whom you haven't seen. So you can't have, you can't, if people get on your nerves in this church and you don't like coming here except for Sunday, then go to a church where you can love people and be around them. Because your witness is not good. That's not a good witness. An unloving Christian is not a Christian. It's not one. So if that's you, if you just come to hear the word on Sunday but you don't like the people, bye Felicia. You are allowed to go to a church where you can love the people too. By Felicia. Because we have to love one another and learn to do that. If Paul can say this about people genuinely, then we should be able to say this about people specifically. We've been, some of us have been around each other for a good while. Loving each other doesn't mean you're always together. These are your best friends. But there's an affection towards people who believe in you, that believe in God like you. In verse 11, he gives this brotherly, this picture of brotherly affection in verse 11 and 12. He says, for I want very much to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So in verse 11, Paul wants to see them so they can have fellowship together. He's like, man, I wanna, I'm looking forward to hanging out with you guys. Looking forward to that. You know, today is the playoffs, football playoffs, AFC, NFC championship. A couple of us are getting together and watch the game and have a good time. We're looking forward to it. Looking forward to it. And you know what? Sadly, I can look more forward to hanging with guys and watching football than I can getting together to pray. I can look more forward to doing that than getting in my couples group and having real deeper fellowship. 
Hashtag, myself included. There is a desire and an excitement and an affection to have fellowship with another brother. He says he wants to impart some spiritual gift to strengthen him. Impart means he just wants to share. I want to share something with you, a spiritual gift that will strengthen you. He doesn't say what the gift is. He doesn't say, but, and he doesn't tell them, but he says, I want this to strengthen you. There are some things that he said in this passage that does give us a clue as to what it could be, but scripture doesn't, that's not important to the scriptures. What's important is that he does want to give them some spiritual gift. He wants to share a part of what he's learned from God with them to strengthen them. It's just this affection for them. Now, verse 12 is interesting because he says this, that is to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, you ever, you ever talk to someone and you say something and you can tell by the look on their face, you, they might have misinterpreted what you meant? You ever do that? So you might be like, no, 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 I, what I meant was, you, you can say that without even, they even said, I don't understand what you meant. You just look at their face and be like, wait a minute, no, 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 I, I'm sorry, that's not what I, I, I meant this. It's like, oh, you know, what? I'm awkward. Like, I do that stuff all the time. I'll see the look on somebody's face and be like, oh, man, they probably thought I meant this and I meant that and this, this and that. So, so I've learned to ask a question. Hey, when I said that, did you think I meant? I think that's what Paul's doing here in verse 12. This is what I think is happening. Paul is saying, for I want very much to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Right? Then he says, that is to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. This is what I think is happening here. I think Paul, Paul may be speaking to the possibility they may misinterpret him saying, I'm coming to bring a spiritual gift to strengthen you, as if something's wrong with you. This may not be true of some, I know some of you would say this is true, what I'm about to say, because you said this to me. But you, you ever had someone walk up to you and just be like, hey, I'm praying for you. And you get offended, like, what you praying for me for? <laughs> like, you ever, you ever had, you never did that? <laughs> Maybe it's just me? Okay, well, there's four or five people lying, but look, there's, there's, you know how sometimes you'd be like, why are you, like, what, what is, what, did the Lord tell you something he ain't tell, Like, why are you praying for me? Like, you can get worried. Like, what does that mean as if that's a bad thing? I've learned to be like, man, well, pray for me right now. And partly because I want to hear what you're praying. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Let's keep it a buck. Let's keep it 100. I want to know what you're saying. But no, nah, you, sometimes you can be like, whoa, what does you mean by that? You know, like, why are you praying for me? Like, you can, you know, so that I, I think what he's saying here, he wants to make sure that they don't think that there may be something wrong with them because, one, Paul hasn't come to see them yet. And Paul has a legendary history of correcting churches. If they've heard anything about Corinth, they know, like, when Paul shows up, he shuts it down. So I think when Paul is saying, I want to come to impart some gift to you, that is, that is to say that we can be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. In other words, nothing's wrong with you. I, th I, I, I think he, he may, he may have, it may, it may, Scripture doesn't really say that, but he may have thought that they may be tempted to think, oh, man, what's wrong with us? Why has he got to come strengthen us? What are we doing wrong? And it's like, no, 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 no. I want to be mutually encouraged. There's a faith that you have that we're talking about in the other churches. We're affected by you. I just want to come and have mutual fellowship. I'm anticipating being encouraged being encouraged by what I see you doing. That's what he's getting at here in verse 12. This is good pastoring. I think this is good pastoring. This is good pastoring. He's making sure that they're not in any way, shape, or form uh, struggling. Or that somehow they may be like, man, Paul's coming. He wants to strengthen us. What does this mean? No, Paul's saying this is a good church. This is a good church. This is a good church in a complicated, dangerous, ungodly city. And their faith to Jesus is spreading around the world. And this is faith. As far as we know, we have no idea who started this church. It'd be speculation. We have no idea. So the fact that there's a church in Rome is crazy to the other churches. Rome of all cities? The city of the people who physically, brutally killed Jesus? There's a church there? And no apostle planted that church as far as we know? Wow. So Paul's saying, look, there's not just a church in Rome. There's a church in Rome that's killing it. 
There's a church in Rome, despite all of the distractions, that is believing in Jesus and whatever they're going through, they are maintaining because it's getting around to the rest of the churches in the other parts of the world and by default encouraging them. In verse 13, Paul communicates wonderfully his desire to see them. But it's still kind of, again, I think, he, I think he's making sure that they don't think there's something wrong. So he says this, now I, don't, now I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I often plan to come to you. Now in my Bible is a parenthetical statement, so it's in parentheses, but was prevented until now in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you just as I had among the rest of the Gentiles. Now again, it's possible that Paul wanted them to know, listen, I've wanted to come and see you. So maybe they thought he doesn't want to come see us. Maybe we're not a legitimate church to him. Maybe the, we're not a legitimate church to the apostles. We're just in Rome doing what we do, so maybe we're not. Or maybe people whom Paul sent there, and we'll get to in Acts 16, maybe they've told him, and they're like, well, where's the, we haven't heard from him. Where's he at? So when Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, I've often planned to come see you, but what's prevented until now, he's telling the truth, literally. It's literally telling the truth. This isn't a figure of speech. And you can find this in Acts 19. You don't have to turn there, I'll just read it. In Acts 19, this is what he said, this is what, this is what the, the, the writer of Acts was Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke. This is what he tells us. And I'm just jumping in. I'm not going to give the background story prior to what it says. At the beginning of verse 21, it says, After these events, Paul resolved by the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. After I've been there, he said, it is necessary for me to see Rome as well. So the Spirit told Paul, you got to go to Macedonia, Achaia, and Jerusalem. That's where the Spirit wants you to go. Paul's like, all right, after that, I, I got to get to Rome. So when he says this, this is literally what happens. But stuff like this would happen throughout his journey. Here's what the next verse says. This is the stuff that Paul was experiencing. After sending, uh, after, well, he says, after I've been there, he said, it is necessary for me to see Rome as well. After sending to Macedonia, two of those who assisted him, Timothy and Erastus, he stayed himself in Asia for a while. About that time, there was a major disturbance about the way. The way is what Christians were called before they were called Christians, was the way. And I take it from the way, the truth, and the light. For a person named Demetrius, a silversmith who made shrines of Artemis, provided a great deal of business for the craftsmen. When he had assembled them, as well as the workers engaged in this type of business, he said, Men, you know that our prosperity derived from this business. You see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this man Paul has persuaded and misled a considerable number of people by saying that gods made by hand are not gods. Not only do we run a risk that our business may be discredited, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be despised and her magnificence come to the verge of ruin, the very one all of Asia and the world worship. And then it says this. When they had heard this, they were filled with rage and began to cry out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This type of stuff Paul dealt with. Can you imagine deciding to go into like, you know, stamp up at University of Maryland and you share the gospel? You're talking to somebody about Jesus and then one or two of their friends come by and then you start explaining and you're like, wow, Lord, thank you for this opportunity. Like I'm, and all of a sudden somebody one of them gets up, walks away, and tells a couple other students. And the next thing you know, the whole stamp union is yelling at you, UMD, UMD. And they're yelling at you because they're angry that you're talking about Jesus, just like that. Or if you're in the mall and all of a sudden the whole mall surrounds you and yells at you, you can't shop here, you can't shop. Some of y'all would break down. <laughs> but it would be frightening. We're afraid of one person rejecting Jesus. Imagine a multitude of people screaming in opposition to what we believe. These are the things that Paul dealt with that he had to escape sometimes and travel through. So he literally could not get to Rome. He was prevented. But now he's saying, I'm, I'm able to come to you now and have a fruitful ministry among you. Now that statement, I want to have a fruitful ministry among you, may seem presumptuous, but Paul stated in his introduction that he is chosen by God to be the apostle to the non-Jewish world, which are called Gentiles. And so the fact that this church that he's writing to is a lot of non-Jewish people in it, 
Paul, by divine authority, is supposed to be the one to help that church grow. So when he says, I want to have a fruitful ministry among you, it's not a presumptuous statement. It's a statement of his responsibility. He's going there so that he can have a mutually encouraging relationship with them where he bears fruit from the work that he puts in with them. In verses 15 and 16, Paul highlights this reality. He says he preaches to the whole world. Here's what he says. I am obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So Paul highlights this. I'm, I have a responsibility to preach to everyone. Everyone. And, he, and this makes sense in light of what he said in verse 1 and verse 5 about being an apostle by God and given the apostleship to to disciple people to the obedience of faith. So he's just saying, look, this is, this is what I, I'm obligated by the Holy Spirit of God. By God himself, I'm obligated to go and make disciples of people. Now, one of the things that I respect about Paul, and I try to emulate this, and these phrases don't make sense to us when we read them, but one of the things I really respect about Paul is his understanding of the surrounding cultures that he's in. He understands, like he's an anthropologist. He studies humanity. He understands what people think, what makes people tick, what people believe, what people trust, and he understands that. You see that in Acts 17, right, where he shows up at the Areopagus and he has this great conversation because there's this, there's this little altar that says to an unknown God. And he begins this, this speech that he's explaining to them you know, I see, he's even says, I see you are religious people. And he walks through this process using some of their non-Christian prophets to make the point that the Christian God, this unknown God, is a greater God than all these other things that they worship. So you see him do that in these significant ways. He understands what they think to be able to use some of their prophets, people that they understand that have no idea who this God is. He uses their words to proclaim who this God is. I love that he does that. And he does that even here in this passage. He said, it's very simple. It's simple. It's simple things like complicated, like Acts 17, simple stuff like this in verse 14. I am obligated to both Greeks and barbarians. All right, here's what that means. <laughs> you know how that, you know that statement, there are two kinds of people in this world, those who like steak and those who don't, right? There's all types of, there's all types of two kinds of people in the world. Well, Paul is speaking knowing that in that day and age, the Greeks, people who were Greeks, were very arrogant very self-confident people, and basically said there's two kinds of people in this world. There's Greeks and there's barbarians. There's Greek. So there's like, so there's the cool people and then the uncool people. There's the people that we all love to want to be like and the people we all hate. There's, there are Greeks and then barbarians. So everyone who wasn't a Greek is a barbarian. That's arrogant. Elite, elitism. They would even say it's racism back then. Right? It's, just, it's an arrogant statement. But Paul understands the culture of the day. So when he's writing this letter in a city where there are Greeks there, where this ideology is there, he makes sure that he hits all of it. So he says, I'm obligated to the Greeks, to the people who are elite, who think they're the best. I'm obligated to preach the gospel to them and to the people that they think are fools. I'm going after everyone, is what he's saying. And then he says that in, in, in more detail, both to the wise and the foolish. Like, I'm not coming here to speak to anyone in particular, but to everyone. I'm preaching the gospel to everyone. And then he says this in verse 15. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I think this statement can adjust our perspective of what gospel means. Here's why I say that. Paul told them already that your faith is being known throughout the world. I'm encouraged. I want to have mutual encouragement of faith. Uh, I'm looking forward to being with you to impart a spiritual good to strengthen you. He names all these categories. I have a fruitful ministry with them. He, he's, he's talking about the church that believes in Jesus Christ, that has believed the gospel. So the fact that he's writing this church is they have believed the gospel. So when he says in verse 15 that I desire to preach the gospel to you, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who in Rome, what gospel is he talking about? 
These people already believe the gospel. That's why you're writing to them. That's why he's going to them. So what gospel is he talking about preaching? What is he eager to preach to them? Well, the gospel isn't just Jesus died on the cross for your sins. That's an aspect, one of the most important aspects of the good news. Gospel means good news. But there's more than that. The obedience of faith that he referenced in the intro is part of the gospel. So it's not just Christ died on the cross for your sins. Cool, let's worship. It's now you get to obey him and live in obedience to him so that you can spend eternity with him. That's a part of the good news. The good news isn't just the people of Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the dead. It's the spirit coming and it's the church and it's all of the, the community, the fellowship, the brotherly affection, the love, the ability to, to actually glorify God, to not have to be enslaved to sin, the confidence that I'm a son rather than a sinner, that I'm, 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 I'm all of these things, I'm a co-heir of Christ, that when I die, the most precious thing that you can trust someone with is your soul. Everyone who's a Christian in this room believes that when they die, they will go to heaven, even though you know you sin and you sin willfully. That's a scary thing to say, hey, when I die, I'm going to heaven because I believe in Jesus, right? We trust him with the most precious thing, which is our eternal destination and struggle when we can't get a job. We trust him with the most precious thing, the most precious thing, that. But there's, there's an aspect of the gospel that it's not just he died on the cross. When we get to Romans 8, when Paul talks about Jesus dying on the cross, you know what he says? More than that, he was resurrected. Oh, what you mean more than that? We'll get to that in Romans 8, months from now. But the point is this, the gospel that he wants to preach is not Jesus died on the cross for your sins. It's the, this is how you get to live in light of it. There's an obedience of faith for the sake of his name that we're now allowed to participate in. We talked about this last week. That's what makes what we do distinctly Christian because we do it for the sake of his name. There are people who will pray more than us. There are people that will tell other people to believe in their God more than us. There are people that will fast more than us. There are people that will do a lot of moral things more than us, but they don't do it for the sake of his name. And so the reward will be this life. But those of us who have believed the gospel that Jesus died on the cross, but now who also believe that we are now able to and responsible to live out this gospel is what I believe Paul is coming to do. He's not coming to teach them, that, tell them that Jesus died on the cross. He's coming to show them how to live in light of that reality. You know, in Acts 3.26, this is, this, is, this is one of the, this verse I remember blew my mind away because I'd never thought about this that way. Peter is, this is early, the church is just beginning. Peter says this to a crowd of, of Jews who are listening to him talk. And he says this, I'm not going to give the backstory. You can look at Acts 3, but 26 says this. God raised up his servant, talking about Jesus, and sent him first to you, to the Jews, to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. How many of you think it's a blessing when you're struggling to, to, with temptation? Does it feel like a blessing when you have issues that you feel like you're just not making progress in? Like, I don't feel like it's a blessing to me. You know what that means? It actually takes faith for me to remember that it is a blessing to resist doing and thinking things that I've created uh, almost part of my personality doing. But what he says here is it's a blessing to turn you away from your evil ways. It's the fact that this isn't a blessing 
that it doesn't feel like a blessing is why I think this church is different from the church that was described in the article. It's the fact that it's not a blessing, it doesn't always feel like a blessing, is why it's easy to get distracted and not do things like pray when we could. Not do things like read. I've joked about this in the past, like I'm not a reader. I remember people used to say that all the time to me, well, I'm just not a good reader. Man, if you can read a verse, you're a reader. This is a good church in a culture of distraction. Would Paul say that ours is? Would he say that we are a good church in a culture of distraction? I'm not answering the question. You should. I will individually. And if the answer is yes, praise God. If the answer is no, how come? How come? What must we do differently? Hashtag myself included. We started kind of late today, so I can't. I had to I rushed through this because I wanted to get to something from last week, but I'll just have to save this until um, then. We won't really have time for a Q&A uh, today, but we'll return to that next week. But let us close in prayer. And if we could sing one song at least, we could sing a song with the band and come back up. Let's pray. Father, we are we are grateful for the both theological realities, the stuff that's really deep, and then we're grateful for the stuff that seems more practical, more man-to-man. -man. We are a church in a culture of distraction, and we have, we have distractions that they didn't have. We have portable distractions. I know my phone is my greatest. We have great distractions and yet you've called us to live in this time. There's nothing wrong with living in a culture of distraction. We just have to learn to not be distracted. Lord, I thank you for this picture of love and affection that, that Paul has towards a body of believers whom he doesn't know, but he's so excited to meet them and to, to hang out with them, to talk about you with them, to learn from them even, and to strengthen them. You know, we know that this was the early church and they really didn't have anything else. It wasn't like they could not like this church and then go to a church in the other town across the street or whatever. This was the church there. This is what they had. They had no choice but to fight through whatever issues that were present. And so letters like this and other letters to other churches help them to know how to conduct themselves 
when there was no place else to go. Well, we live in a culture where if people don't like this church or their church, they can go somewhere else. We can run from the things that we need to grow in because we can leave the culture, we can leave the church, we can do whatever we feel like doing, we can not go, we can distance ourselves, we can do so many ways. There's so many churches now, even on Good Luck Road, there's a ton of churches and we can just escape to any church and not have to grind in and, and deal with the issues, deal with our own selves. So easy to think other people and their personalities are the issue. The way people say and do things as if we are the standard, but Lord, we're just... We are where we are by your grace. And we all have blind spots. And so we need each other to help each other to grow together. And I thank you that there are levels where that clearly exists in this church. I don't know what Paul would say, actually, if he came to our church. I, I know some things he'd say about me, though. And so I pray that all of us would hashtag myself included as we think through that. May the article that was read, where it indicts us, let it indict us, Lord. Where it indicts us, where things are true. Whether or not, may we grow. May we give glory to you. for your mercy and grace in our lives. You have, you have allowed us to approach the throne of grace in confidence so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So I pray for those who are need encouragement to press on this morning, to continue in the faith, Lord. May they continue to persevere, making tweaks along the way until they see you. And I pray for those who could care less about what their faith is. Pray for those who are here that just are fine with immaturity, fine with apathy, fine with weakness, fine with disbelief in you. I pray that you would challenge that. That you would, you would, you would break the heart of stone that, that allows whoever that is to persist in that way. For their, 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 their strength against you, their arrogance against you is not going to, it's a battle that they will not win. I pray that you would allow them to be humble. Let them critique me, but may they be able to read your Bible and not be able to critique that. Lord, may they have problems with what I said, how I said, and how I look, but may they, may they be gripped by what you've written in your word, that this Scripture has governed a group of people called the church for nearly two millennia. And you've proven you're not going anywhere. And neither are those who genuinely believe in you. So I pray, Lord, that you would, you would use us as our culture is submitted to distraction. May we be obligated both to the cool and the uncool, to the well-housed, to the homeless. To the oppressor, to the oppressed. May we be obligated, obligated to tell others about you. And may we be obligated obligated, particularly those who are members of this church, to continue to press through whatever awkwardness is there, so that whatever sinful judgment is there, whatever resentment or bitterness is there, whatever, whatever's there, if those things are there, may we press in. So that we could sincerely say that we love one another. May no one leave just because they don't want to befriend people in the church. May our community glorify you.
because Paul's not coming to visit us. But you'll still tell us what you thought of us one day. And we pray that you're pleased. For our good, but ultimately for your glory. In your name we pray.